0: Well, once again, good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Jordan Valley Church. Um, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 15. And um, we will read verses 1 through 18. That's Exodus 15:1 through 18. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea, in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them, they sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Great God, you always defend and you rescue your people as we just read, Lord. And, uh, and we ought to be singing about it. Uh, Jesus Christ, you're our king. You have saved us. You always defend us. So please help us to see it as we read about your saving acts today in your word. Help us to sing to you when we see your salvation, God. We pray it. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, um, one of the uh, songs that I played for the kids that they didn't know is one that um, probably only my kids will know, Uh, but I was running out of options. (laughs) So, um, um, and it is a song that is called uh, My Stick. And it's uh, from a a, a group, a, a category of songs, from a, uh, an artist, uh, a group of artists, called Bad Lip Reading. And they take uh, a films, works of art, and they overdub them with uh, different words. And so this particular one comes from uh, a Return of the Jedi, I believe. And it is Yoda singing a song about his, uh, the staff that he carries around. and, uh, and my kids love it, and it's, it's so catchy that they can't stop singing it. Uh, and it has been actually forbidden from singing in our house now, unfortunately. The lyrics go like this. Uh, Knock you in your head with my stick, with my stick. You're going to have a mark from my stick, from my stick. my stick. My stick, my stick, my stick is better than bacon. Okay. This is absolute absurdity, and that's the point of it. But it's unfortunate, isn't it, that many of the songs that get stuck in our head uh, are songs that we don't want to be stuck in our head. I think most of the time, you probably agree that when a song gets stuck in your head, you wish it was something else. But that's what it is. Um, And for me, the best way to get a song out of my head is just by listening to it, which might sound counterintuitive, but Melanie can attest to this. Sometimes late at night, right before uh, we go to bed, she'll hear uh, me playing a song on my phone. It's usually some ballad from some 80s movie or something like that that somehow got stuck in my head, I just have to listen to it. But usually it's it's something that I don't even enjoy all that much. So um, those are the songs that get stuck in our head. But what's the difference between those kind of songs, the ones we hate and get stuck in our head, and the kind of song that we just read today? What's the difference? The one we read today, we don't know what the melody was, Chances are, if it had a catchy melody, it wouldn't be very catchy to us. Uh, and yet, it's somehow still more significant and, uh, and more important. We know that. There, there is a similarity. Um, when a song gets stuck in your head, you feel like you can't help but sing it. You get the sense that the Israelites, let me remind you, they had just been saved from the Egyptians. They had, they had been rescued from slavery in Egypt come up to the, to the sea, found themselves between the Egyptian army and the sea, and didn't know what they were going to do. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and God separated the waters so that the Israelites could walk through on dry land, and then the waters came crashing back down on Pharaoh's army. And they couldn't help but sing. There was no song stuck in their head. They, they, didn't, they didn't feel compelled because of a catchy melody. They felt compelled to sing because that seems like all they could do at that moment was praise God. Uh, they, they couldn't help it. And this, this event that, that happens, it's so significant for them that it becomes a song they'll sing for generations. It's, a, it's the defining moment in the life of Israel when they were saved from the Egyptians and God brought them through the Red Sea. It's mentioned... Whenever, whenever there's any lengthy story about what God has done for his people in the Old Testament, it starts with bringing them out of Egypt. Um, well, Why would that be? It's because, it's because redemption, God's saving work, it's the greatest gift that God has given to his people. And when, when that's the greatest gift that he's given to his people, they can't help but reflect on it. We can't help but reflect on it. And as we're working our way through the, the book of Exodus... And talking about the three gifts that God's given his people, we find ourselves at a place here where after receiving the gift of redemption, we see people in the wilderness who can't help but sing a song. The Hebrew word at the beginning that, that says, I will sing, has a sense uh, of I, I must sing. I have to sing. I don't have a choice. I have to, I have to proclaim what God has done. That's why Psalm, Psalm 106 says, they, be, they believed his words. And they sang his praise, talking about what God said he would do in Egypt. And that, that's the same for us today. It's the same for us today. We too should be praising God for who he is. We too should be praising God for what he has done. We too should be praising God for what we know he will continue to do for us. Because he's our mighty warrior and defender today. He still is. We're not in armies, but he's still a mighty warrior and defender. He has trampled our enemies and he continues to rescue us. And he is bringing us to his promised land of heaven. So let's, uh, let's uh, look through this a bit more. God, God is to be praised for who he is. Um, there is a lot that's said about God in this passage. First, he's highly exalted. And that is a, a phrase that at, at church we're so familiar with it that we, we sort of, uh, in, in fact, all of these phrases, we get very familiar with them. They start to all sound the same. And we don't know what the difference is between being highly exalted and being majestic maybe. But this particular phrase, if you think about being exalted, you think about being high up, high up above everything else. And, and what is Israel saying about God? They're saying he's higher than any other God. Well, well, why? Because they just came out of a land that loves gods, whose high God changes from generation to generation, who is, who is addicted uh, addicted almost to having many, many, many gods. And Israel said, he's above them all. He is highly exalted. You say, the Lord is my strength and my defense. They know they're weak. They're slaves. They're running from Egypt. But he is strong. They have nothing to defend them when they run away. And yet he is their defense. He's their salvation. Having been set free from the Egyptians, the the Israelites are are free now to fully identify, uh, identify themselves fully with God. And this is really amazing when you read these phrases because there starts to be a repetition about it that you can't ignore. He is my strength. He is my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Not just my God, but my Father's God. They're, they're praising the same God who had, who had been, been with them for generations. One of the reasons that we have a corporate reading every uh, Sunday, uh, and this particular corporate reading this Sunday was very interesting, is it's, it's that we remind ourselves, uh, we remind ourselves what Christians have believed for generations. And if you were a pastor uh, reading that uh, that corporate reading that we had today, you would have said, "This is a very weighty charge. Thank goodness no one here understands what they're saying." (Laughter) um, Ah, it, was, it was a fantastic reading, but uh, it would have taken some digestion, I think. Um, but that's one of the reasons we read those every Sunday. We want to remind ourselves what, what Christians have believed for generations. Um, and, and Moses here and the people are reminding themselves that the same God they worship today is no different from the God that their fathers worshipped. The Egyptian gods throughout history were always shifting around. Sometimes one high God was this one, Ra, Ra. And another time, the high god was Ammon. And then, after a while, they decided they might as well just merge the two into one called Ammon-Ra. And then another pharaoh might come along and say, I don't like that one. I'll pick Aten. And then, that's the high god. That's not how it was for Israel. They are worshiping the same god for generations and generations. The only god, the one who is exalted above all other authorities. And he is a warrior god. He's a warrior God. This is not very very popular today. But it's important to those who are being rescued, isn't it? They need a God who is going to lead them in battle. You have to have a God who will fight on your behalf if you're in a world that is hostile to his purposes. He's got to fight on your behalf, so he's a warrior and Israel was formed as a people in a world that was used to wars. They were, they were saved out of slavery. And there was no way to be formed as a nation at that time without going into war. And so they needed a warrior God. I'm going to skip down to, uh, to verse 11 and, and then we'll go back a little bit. Uh, the, the song continues later on, Who among the gods is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. I was, uh, I was fortunate enough yesterday to, to go to the museum with my family. And we went, went, with, uh, went, went with another family from church. And at the Natural History Museum up by the U, there's an exhibit on now uh, about uh, Egypt. I love these kind of exhibits. I love these kind of exhibits. So there's, a, there's, an, there's an Egyptian exhibit up at the museum right now. And so what you, what you get to do, which, like, fair warning, if you bring uh, two nine-year-olds, I'm sorry, four nine-year-olds, maybe, and a four-year-old and another, like, seven-year-old, the dinosaur bones are way more interesting than the Egyptian exhibit. So take it as a date night. Leave your kids here on Saturday. Go to see the Egyptian exhibit. Um, you go there, and here's what you see. You see, it's fascinating, but you see idols everywhere. And by idols, I mean little statues and drawings and paintings of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. The Egyptians were really, really good at worship. Maybe the best. Everything they did was about what they believed. You couldn't get away from it. And everything that they believed was all around them. And so the sun was a god. And the river was a god. And the the crops were gods, and the gods were depicted in all of these various representations. And so what do you see when you see all of these things? They're they're familiar images to us because because we've seen them so much. You'll see a human body with the head of a falcon, It's Osiris. You'll see another human body with the head of a uh, a jackal or a dog. You might see a snake's body with a human head. Of course, you see the sphinxes, the lion bodies. With the human heads, but you might also see a lion body with an eagle's head or something like that. All of these mashups of different gods, and some of them they can't, you know, that aren't animals, like the sun is just a disk, and you see it just sort of floating above the heads of the other gods. They're all just the things that have been created, everything that Egypt saw around them, and they mashed them together in a bunch of different little things. To make gods out of them. And yet what the Israelites say is, who among the gods is like you, Lord? You're majestic in holiness. You're awesome in glory and working wonders. He's, he's completely separate from any other manifestation of God that people want to think of. You can't represent God by taking the most powerful animal you can think of or the most applicatory animal for a, a specific kind of thing and just smacking the head of an animal on a human body and then bowing down and worshiping him. Because there is no one like the Lord. That's why he he so much later on, you see, rejects all those images that people want to make about him. He rejects them because there's no one like him. All the other gods, one commentator says, were distorted imitations of him, fabricated in the minds and sculpting shops of those who worshiped them. We speak of gods in a different way today. We speak of gods in a different way. Sometimes we use it so colloquially that it's disturbing. There's a, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of basketball, and it's very annoying to watch sometimes uh, because of the drama of it. It starts to feel like professional wrestling sometimes. But there's a basketball player who's very good, and they don't even refer to him by his name anymore. They just call him the point god because he's a point guard, and he's really good at passing, and they think he's the best at passing, so everyone just refers to him as the point god. And they get so used to calling him the point god that uh, they don't even call him by his name anymore. But everyone knows when you're talking about the point god, at least if you are familiar with basketball, that you're talking about Chris Paul. And um, why do they call him that? He's good at passing, but but guess what? If you watch him and you're not a a fan of his uh, team, he's very, very annoying because he's he's ticky-tacky. He gets people to create fouls, and you say, just play the game, man. Like, you don't have to run down the court and, and then see someone behind you and just stop so that they run into you and foul you. Maybe just keep running and, and play basketball, you know? Uh, you don't have to complain and bark to the refs every time something happens that you, you, know, you know was a foul. So this is a sermon illustration. Obviously, like, I don't feel very passionate about this. But here's the thing. You have someone who everyone is calling a god. And he acts in the most human ways that anyone can see. It's just done on national television. And that's how all of the gods were in the ancient Near East. If you read any of those tales and fables that they told in Egypt or anywhere else, what you have is stories about gods acting like people, having tempers, being capricious. Um, And we, we we see God described sometimes in human ways. But what he says is this, is, this is how you describe me because this is the only way you can describe me. But I'm not like you, he says in Isaiah. I'm not like you. He's unique. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, he says in Isaiah, nor my praise to carved idols. That's why it's important today. Because we live in a world that does not want to admit that there is only one God. And, and we're, we're kind of getting past this area, even where Christianity is, is uh, ridiculed so much as just, it, you can be a Christian as long as you accept the fact that, that everyone else who, who worships a different God is just as legitimate as yours. And so everything gets mashed up, and you take the head of this God and the head of that God, and you mash it together, and this is the God that we all like. And yet, in Acts... What was preached is this, there is salvation in no one else, talking about Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's the God of his people, and we are to praise him. He is the only God. He's exalted above all gods. We're not just to praise him for who he is, but we're to praise him because of what he has done. There's a contrast here between what Pharaoh's armies think they're going to do and what God does. So all of a sudden, we start reading about what they do and what God does. And what do they do? Well, they get they change their minds, first of all, right? They see Israel running away from them. They get scared, and they start running after them. They don't want to lose their entire workforce. And so they start running after the Israelites. And they say, uh, in the song it says, the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I'll divide the spoils. So we're going to run after them. We're going to take all the stuff that's theirs, and all the stuff that they took from us, we're going to take it back again. We're going to bring them back. We're going to kill whoever we need to kill and uh, bring them all back. I'll gorge myself on them. I'll draw my sword and my hand will destroy them, it says. And how does the song say that God responded? You blew with your breath and the sea covered them. That's all it took. God didn't ride on chariots, it didn't require horses, it didn't require the bows and the arrows. It didn't require a vast army. It just required that he bring the sea back down from where he would brought it. Back down on top of them. It's a violent section. It's a violent section, isn't it? I mean, evoking these images of, of drowning, people sinking to the bottom of the ocean. At the end of the last chapter, it says they were washing up on the shore we don't like to think about this kind of a violent God, do we? In fact, even here, we don't sing about it much. Part of that's because we don't know what to do with it. Most of us haven't ever had to go through that kind of violence and be rescued from it. Um, and so it, it just seems kind of morbid. But it was everything for these people. And not just because they'd been rescued, but because God, God even in how he kills the army, you see, exhibits his power over, over Egypt and all these false gods. If you walk among the relics of Egypt, at any uh, at any uh, uh, presentation or museum or anywhere that has uh, Egyptian artifacts, what you'll see usually at the end of the at the end of the journey there is a coffin, a sarcophagus, tomb, and we're familiar with the images. They're all painted, and at this particular one, the one at the U right now, there's an actual mummy in the tomb, and they have the lid open, and you can look at the mummy wrapped in cloths. It's not. It's not as bad as you might think, but it's, it's a real mummy there in the tomb. You see, the Egyptians believed in the afterlife. They believed that once you died, that was not the end of it. But there were some things that you had to do. There were some necessary things that had to happen if you're going to die in the best way. When you died, you, your body had to be preserved. You had to be fed. You had to be wrapped. You had to be taken care of, you see. And what does God show this Egyptian army when he smashes them under the ocean? Their bodies cannot be recovered, many of them. They will rot there in the ocean. If they wash up on the shore, they'll just rot in the desert. No preservation and no afterlife. And that is what God shows to the Egyptians. He takes away any opportunity that they have to have peace everlasting when he drowns them in the ocean. Still very violent. But there are people that we know of, that we're familiar with, at least in history, for whom this kind of violence rings more true than it does for us. There's a hymn that was sung in the 1800s called Go Down Moses, and it's a song that we might be familiar with uh, because we'll, we'll call it a, a spiritual And it was sung by slaves in America. And they would sing these words. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. And this stanza, this next stanza, gets subtracted from any modern version of it that you'll see. And I I was looking at an old report from the 1800s, an old hymnal from the 1800s, and there was this stanza in that that, uh, hymn. Thus spoke the Lord, bold Moses said, Let my people go. If not, I'll smite your firstborn dead. Let my people go. This is what they sung. You won't find it in modern renditions of the song. Why? Because we don't like that kind of violence in our hymns. And yet for the slaves in America who themselves had been beaten down and who had to escape this kind of torture. For them, it meant everything that God would defeat the enemies like a warrior. Not just take them out and say, okay, let's, let's all be peaceful here. It meant everything to them that God dealt with sin in a concerted and an actionary way. And then, it's so funny about this particular song. Because this song, Go Down Moses, was then readopted, think about this, by Hebrews as they celebrate Seder, that is Passover, today. So one folk singer in the 1950s was so surprised when he went to Israel. And he he heard people in Israel during the Passover singing, Go Down Moses. In Hebrew, What a surprise it was to him that they should then adopt this song that had been taken out of their experience for their own purposes. But if you hear it today, there is a verse that's missing, and it's this verse. If you hear it today sung during, by, by, by Jews during Passover, they will, they will remove this verse. Lord, help us all from bondage flee, let my people go. And let us all in Christ be free. Let my people go. Jews, Jews that don't believe in Christ will not sing about Christ. So they have to remove that verse. There's some, there's some cognitive dissonance when they sing the song, and they know it's a Christian hymn. But they have to remove Christ from it. And yet when they remove Christ from it, they remove everything that's important about it. What sort of man is this? Men marveled when they were around Jesus Christ. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's Jesus, the same one that brought the sea down on the Egyptians. You can't remove Christ from it. Micah, the prophet, reflects on our sins like this. He says, He will again have compassion on us, talking about God and the, the future and Christ's coming. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, Paul says in Colossians, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is in Christ, when he took our sins away. This is resurrection for his people. He raises them to life to bring them to the promised land. And I I think the, the Israelites experienced freedom from slavery in a way that we will never be able to fathom. Uh, just like those slaves freed in the Civil War experienced uh, 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 freedom from slavery in in a way that we don't necessarily understand. But the biblical perspective is this, that there is an even greater slavery that all of humankind is actually subject to. And it's what we have to all be set free from. So if we know that we've been saved from something, even greater than what the Israelites were saved from, I have to ask well, all of us, why aren't we compelled to sing in the same way? Well, we might think, if only I saw God's power like that, I would sing. I would sing like that. If, I, if God did something miraculous for me like that, so big that I couldn't ignore it, I would sing. And I, and I, and I think I would sing. If God did something like that for me, I would, I would probably be singing to him for the rest of my life. But he actually never shows me that kind of power. But we tell ourselves, if I saw that kind of power, I wouldn't be like them. I would sing. But do you know what they did? It only took a few days. John will preach about it next week. It took, it took just a few days for them to forget what he has done. They spend the next 40 years grumbling about how he doesn't take care of them. Like children who get everything that they ever need. And when they don't get one thing, they say to parents, you never let me do anything. We all said that when we were kids too. So I think that goes back. It goes all the way back here to the Israelites. Even you see, what keeps us close to God is not our faithfulness to Him after He shows us how powerful He is and how powerful uh, um, it, it, after He shows us how powerful He is. But His His faithfulness to us is shown when we are. Uh, let me let me back up because I. Keep screwing up the sentence. What keeps us close to God is actually not our faithfulness to him after he shows us how powerful he is, but his faithfulness to us when we're constantly forgetting about how powerful he is. We stick with him because he keeps us with him, not because we see what he did and we're just always rejoicing. But we can and we will and we ought to praise God for what he, who he is and what he has done, but also what he will do. And this is where the Israelites are going. He's, he didn't bring them out just to leave them in the desert. He's bringing them to the promised land. And, and they talk about it in such a way that they know they're going somewhere. God's people sing uh, not just because they've been brought out of oppression, but because they're going to a new and better home. Uh, that's, that's what we get at the end of the passage, right? But how much better is the home? I have to ask you this. How much better is the home than where they came from? If you saw the Egyptian temples even today when you see the pyramids, you probably have thought to yourself, as I have, how did they do that? The architecture that they could do was not just, it wasn't just fantastic for what they had. If we saw those buildings today we would we would think they were amazing. If you see the temples that were built for the pharaohs, the things that stick in our mind are the the pyramids, the tombs that were built for them. This Egyptian civilization was fantastic. And, And let me tell you this. Israel, at the height of its power, when Solomon had peace all around him, the temple was built and he had his huge palace, it just doesn't compare to what Egypt had for a much longer period of time. It just doesn't. So how can they be singing about God bringing them to a better place when they just left one of the best places there will ever be? It's because of this. That was not the end of it, and it was never intended to be. The peace in Israel, when, when they got there, lasted not very long at all. Before they were fighting, the kingdom was falling apart, and it was, it was destroyed. So if the home that God provides for us is better, how can it be better? It's because of this. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance, Peter says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, the the home that God is preparing is better because it is his home. It's not the home that someone built for him on his behalf. It's his home. In fact, Christ says it's the home that he is building for you I'm preparing a place for you, he says. The greatest temples in Egypt were never for common people. Those amazing tombs that we see, you and I would never have been able to enter them back then. You understand that? We would have the common graves in the desert. They would take care of our bodies as much as they could so that we could live on. But we wouldn't get to be in the temples. We don't get to be in the pyramids you and i we'd be buried in holes in the desert those temples are the place for royalty for for very wealthy people that's what those greatest tombs were reserved for but for us God invites rebels with no place no royalty no garb no titles and no majesty and he says to you and to me i'm preparing a place for you and it's my place and if you live in me and I live in you because of Jesus Christ, that home is a guarantee. See, Jesus Christ is not just the Pharaoh who reigns over some local kingdom for a few years and then passes it on to the next one. He's the king who reigns forever and ever. And he rules over us and defends us. How can we sing How can we motivate ourselves to sing? I'll end with this final piece. Our songs cannot... Merely be an experience. We cannot come to church and just rely on the music being so good that it moves us. That doesn't matter. Whatever church you go to, if that's why you sing, it's not the right reason. Our songs cannot just be an experience. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not diminishing in any way the 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 greatness of good songs. I, I love good music. I love good music. But the songs that we sing have to arise out of our experience, not be an experience of themselves. It's not just about making the music sound good, whatever the words might do. But You see, we ought to be able to sing with the same tempest and the same fervor, whether or not there are any instruments around us, because of what he has done for us, so that we can't help but sing. There's another Civil War era hymn that goes like this. No more auction block for me. No more. Many thousand gone. No more drivers lash for me. No more. No more peck of corn for me. No more pint of salt for me. These are, these are different verses. The pint of salt and the peck of corn were just rations for slaves. And, the, and I read in this hymnal, the, the anthem of liberation probably dates from the year of Jubilo. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation came into effect. Soon many of the slaves he had set free were fighting with the Union forces. And as they marched, they sang the thrilling lines of No More Auction Block for Me. From a speech delivered in 1862 comes this comment I asked one of these blacks where they got these songs. They make them, sir. How do they make them? I'll tell you, it's this way My master calls me up and orders me a short peck of corn and a hundred lashings. My friends see it, my friend sees it and is sorry for me. When they come to the praise meeting that night, they sing about it. Some are very good singers and, some, and know how, and they work it in. They work it in, you know, until they get it right, and, and that's the way. They just sung out of their experience. They just, they just sung because they were set free. And these same slaves who sung the songs were singing these songs. You, you, you understand it. From what I read earlier, they were the ones who had been set free, and had been put into the army to go fight the battle on behalf of the North. They were set free from their slavery and immediately said, go die. But they were singing. Because it was better to, to run toward something that could kill you if you were free than it was to live as a slave. And so they just sang out of their experience. And I don't think we understand how much better it is to sing when you've been set free than when you are still a slave. I don't think we understand that. And yet we will someday. Because when you read about Christians in heaven in the book of Revelation, and you read about Christians who were persecuted, and they may have died even for the sake of Christ, Here's what it says in Revelation 15. It says they sing the song of Moses. The song that Christians sing for their salvation. It's the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It's the song of our salvation. And it's the same song we will be singing someday in heaven. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we, we acknowledge and recognize that it's, it's difficult to um, sing out of uh, circumstances um, that we're unfamiliar with, and yet what hopefully all of us are familiar with is that your salvation has come in Jesus Christ, that you've rescued us from the slavery of sin, and brought us into a new home with you, and you promise us the gift of eternal life, Lord. And we pray today that that very truth would help us to sing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.